The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Yep, thanks, Tyler and Contessa. Stocks are falling again on Wall Street as we wrap up a downbeat quarter and an awful month for the bulls. We're near session lows. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome to Closing Bell, everyone. I'm Sarah Eisen. Take a look at where we stand right now in the market. We're down on the Dow, 1.22%, about 350 points right now. S&P 500 is down a full percent. The only sector that is remaining higher at the moment is real estate. Everybody else is lower. Utilities and consumer staples are near the bottom of the market. A lot of staples, P&G, for instance, Mondelez on the list of 52-week lows today. NASDAQ composite down three-quarters of 1%. For the week as a whole, we are down 2%. And take a look at the biggest decliners this quarter on the Dow, spanning a range of industries. It's been absolutely tough. From Intel, Verizon, Nike, which is trading at the lowest level today since April 2020, Walgreens, and IBM. Double-digit declines across the board in the last three months. Coming up on the show today, we will talk to John Lipsky, the chair of the National Bureau of Economic Research. That's the group that is tasked with officially designating a recession. Hasn't done so yet. As talk of a global economic slowdown does heat up, we'll see where he stands on that debate. We'll kick it off, though, with Nike. It's the story of the day. The stock is getting hammered, down more than 12 and a quarter percent. Some takeaways about what it says about the company and the broader economy. What is the problem here? It's excess inventory. Inventory was up 44% in the quarter, 65% in North America in September. Basically, product from Nike, sneakers, apparel, it's been flooding into the U.S. after having been stuck at sea or closed in Asian factories for months. It's an issue because Nike now has to mark down prices to unload all of it. CFO Matthew Friend saying on the call last night, quote, We started to increase promotional activity in Q1 and expect the broader marketplace to be promotional. That means margins and profitability will continue to be under pressure. And margins were down more than 2% to 44% this quarter, worse than expected. And while CEO John Donahoe did say last night on the call, consumer connection is strong with Nike, the brand is doing very well, there's always a concern about what liquidation or heavy markdowns do to a brand's strength. On top of that, the strong dollar is shaving $4 billion off sales this year, and China is still in rolling lockdowns and not growing. For Nike, the key will be, can they unload the inventories with markdowns and preserve the brand heat? And can they do it fast so that it won't keep weighing on profitability? As for what it says about the overall economy, not necessarily cause for concern about the consumer. That wasn't the problem here. There's even some good news. Promotions mean disinflation. Prices should come down in spots like apparel and sneakers. Inventory flooding means the supply chain is finally thawing. Two things we needed to see happen. The problem is it is taking a toll on corporate profits, slicing growth, and that strong dollar certainly will hurt exports and earnings as well for the broader economy. Let's bring in Brian Nagel of Oppenheimer. Brian, really wanted to talk to you because you are a bull on this stock, was bullish going in and still bullish coming out. Why? Well, Diane, well, good afternoon, Sarah. So, Look, I was listening to your opening there, and when I say this, I've been talking to our clients all day about Nike, so I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear. You know, there are risks, okay? There are problems out there, okay? But I really do believe against that backdrop that the market's got this one wrong. 
You know, Nike, yes, they're over inventory. But in my view, you know, given the conversations we've had now for the last several quarters about the trouble getting product in, you know, this was Nike as well as many or most consumer companies out there. This over inventory problem, there's a silver lining. What that means is the supply chain woes that have weighed upon the consumer landscape so dramatically are now abating. So yes, they're going to clear product. They'll happen you know, in this quarter, maybe the next couple of quarters. But in my mind, that is a short-term problem. And then behind all of this, and you, you said this in your opening, you know, the company was very clear to say last night on their conference call that underlying demand you know, in the United States and markets across the globe is very good. You know, they're not seeing a demand problem here. They're not seeing the signs, what they would consider signs of recession. So I actually think, you know, while I want to be clear, I mean, there's risks out there. You know, we kind of have a question sure. of where we're headed. But right now, I think I think this report from Nike was actually much more encouraging than the stock price would suggest. So you're telling your clients to go out and buy that you've got it on sale. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this stock now is, frankly, a fraction of what it was. I think, you know, you and your colleagues pointed out that it's, it's basically back to now the levels of you know, the beginning of the pandemic. It's trading one of its lowest multiples in years. I, I think Nike's cheap here. I mean, what you're getting is the, an absolute, utterly powerful global brand that is now much more digitally driven than it's ever been. And what that means is they, they operate the business better. They connect better with consumers. The product innovation is phenomenal coming out of Nike. So I do think, and it may take some time, Right. But I do think it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, at some point we'll look back and say this was a huge buying opportunity in Nike. So here's the push. Here's one area of pushback. Promotions can damage a brand, especially if we're talking about liquidation, which which is what it increasingly is looking like here with the amount of inventories that they have. So, yes, while they're not having a demand problem right now, there are questions about whether they can retain that in a very promotional environment at a time where the consumer is slowing around the world as it's a very global company. Yeah, so Nike, look, Nike has to manage this correctly. Okay, that's a, that's a great point, and it, it's absolutely true. Now, when I was talking to the management team last night after their conference call, and you know, the, the product coming in, the excess product is primarily apparel, and I think they're very thoughtfully thinking of how to properly discount this, you know, to keep it almost a segment within Nike so as not to disrupt the brand. Now, the other point they're making to me is, you know, I asked the question, why why discount this? Why not just kind of let it work its way through? And what they want to do is get them get their product merch their merchandise mix set clean fresh for the important holiday season and then start 2023 fresh so in a way that again these, these price promotions i think will be short-term in nature and then will give way to a much better looking product mix from nike so my other question and it has to do with some of the bearish threads out there today and and frankly in the last few weeks are there any execution problems at nike is nike dealing with this worse, worsely, I want to say, which is not a word, than some of the other retailers in the space and some of the other companies in the space, the whole supply chain inventory backup? Well, look, it's a great question. I mean, I don't want to, I, you know, I hate to give my companies passes, right? But and I'm going to say this somewhat jokingly, okay? But Nike and their inventory issues right now are frankly in good company. You know, we've heard something similar from companies like Walmart and Target. You know, they, I think what had happened, this, the pandemic, the, the supply chain issues, the post-pandemic, you know, it, I think this has just been an absolutely unprecedented environment for consumer for these these consumer companies. So I don't think Nike, I mean, I don't think Nike is performing any worse. I think Nike, like others, like other very high quality companies, got tripped up here a bit in an unprecedented environment. Brian Nagel, thank you. Pounding the table on Nike, $195 price target. That would be a big increase from here. We appreciate it. Says the market has it wrong. Well, back in August, we asked John Lipsky, who chairs the group in charge of identifying a recession, where he stood in the slowdown debate. 
needs to be broad and diffuse uh, slowdown or downturn in the in the economy. Uh, the latest data, of course, as you pointed to already, uh, jobs data and others uh, certainly suggest that the economy continues to expand. Up next, he'll give us his read, his latest one on the economy as the chorus of recession calls grows louder by the day. We're down 286 on the Dow. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What is on Wall Street's mind this week? Recession. Certainly a hot topic among Wall Street's biggest names at our Delivering Alpha conference this week and on our air. We believe we are in a recession. I think we'll likely have a recession. It, it may be a mild recession. It may be a growth recession. But yes, I do think we'll have a recession. The odds of recession are really quite high, very, very high. Our central case is a hard landing by the end of 23. Everybody likes to forecast recessions, and, and there will be one. It's just a question of when and, frankly, how hard. So many calls for a recession, but there is only one organization that officially makes the call. Joining us is John Lipsky, NBER chair. And I know, John, what you're going to say, that you're not out with the decision yet and you're not on the official committee. But how, how is it looking to you at this point? Well, you're right, Sarah. You're a good forecaster. <laughs> I'm going to say <laughs> Professor Bob Hall, Robert Hall of Stanford University, who chairs the Business Cycle Dating Committee, is the one to talk to. But I know what he would say. He'd say, you have to remember a recession involves a contraction a broad-based contraction in economic activity. So I'll, I'll leave it at that it, uh, for your, your uh, viewers to decide if we're there yet or if we're headed there yet. But this is certainly a period in which we've seen a set of unprecedented developments lead to a whole series of unanticipated uh, reactions in the economy and in financial markets. And uh, that means that using, since models, are just a sophisticated way of saying what happened before will happen again. If we have right. unprecedented aspects, it's not mm -hmm. surprising that the models don't work and the forecasters keep getting surprised. Right. And I almost feel like it doesn't even matter on the recession question. It's, it's how long and how deep of a downturn are we looking at? Because the market's been figuring out what, what earnings should try to look at? Because first, there's the question of how high rates are going to go. What, what is your projection on how deep and how ugly this could get? Well, partly depends, first of all, what has been the, the most unanticipated aspect has been the rapid acceleration in inflation. Inflation is still today centered in energy, food, and motor vehicles. Uh, it's broadening for sure because energy uh, uh, among other things, will broaden out into the economy. But it's we've seen a stabilization for now of energy prices. 
So the trajectory looking forward of inflation remains very, very uncertain. The Fed, which we know was started late in terms of reacting, is now trying to uh, give, uh, not trying to, they are acting strongly and giving the impression that they are going to remain focused on inflation. But what is uncertain is how how serious the, and long-lasting the inflation problem is going to be. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty. People who are telling you now they know exactly what's going to happen may not have a year ago understood what yeah. was going to happen. And even the Fed itself it says that when, when it's saying data dependent now, it, it feels like what it means is inflation dependent. Um, John, so we're parsing every single Fed speech, and there have been so many of them today. Lael Brainer, the vice chair of the Fed, spoke. Yes. And interestingly, she did mention some of the risks out there from what the Fed was doing to the rest of the world, particularly emerging markets. Let's just play the clip for that. Environment of high inflation and rising interest rates highlights the importance of paying attention to how cross-border spillovers and spillbacks might interact with financial vulnerabilities. In this environment, we're attentive to financial vulnerabilities that could be exacerbated by the advent of additional adverse shocks. What do we make of that? They're attentive to the spillovers and the, and the adverse shocks. That's the first time I've really heard them acknowledge that. We know they're paying attention to it, but do you think it could cause them to slow down because of how bad it's getting for the strong dollar well, and around the world? Naturally, of course, but I, I understood what she was saying uh, very intelligently was that we have to recognize that the rest of the world's economy has an impact on the trajectory of the U.S. economy, and the Fed has to take that into consideration when setting policy. It doesn't mean the Fed is trying to set policy for the rest of the world. They would tell you that they have a domestic responsibility that is first and foremost, but they have to take into account what's happening in the rest of the world. And what's happening in the West world is very complicated, uh, but not very, not very positive right now. But I guess what we're wondering is what what all these feds, how they're thinking about when to hit the pause button or when to take take back the, the giant size of interest rate increases we're getting. Well, take back. I, I think the debate is really uh, in the past it, it is the following. Uh, in the past, recent past, there's been uh, widespread uh, feeling or analysis that suggests that for the Fed to have an important impact on controlling inflation, they have to set uh, the federal funds rate in positive real territory. In other words, have to raise the funds rate above the inflation rate. Uh, now, we're a long way from that. And how you would parse that, that principle depends on what you think inflation is going to be. So this is this is going to be very data dependent, but the possibility is the Fed has quite a ways to go. But if inflation turns out to be more benign, less so. But I think until you the Fed has a positive real funds rate, uh, it won't be clear to everybody that they're going to be exerting downward pressure on inflation. What do you think about interest rates in, in the U.S.? Do you think they've reached their, their so-called natural levels yet when they were pushed so far below that during the depths of the pandemic? Well, that's a, what we're just saying is uh, if inflation stays high and the principle is to have an important impact on slowing inflation back to target, the Fed has to raise their funds rate to above the rate of inflation, then there's a, there's a way to go. If inflation recedes unexpectedly, that would make it much easier. But it's unlikely that the Fed is uh, 
yet close to a place where they can they can stop and you can see that in their own dot plots that the fed uh, that the fed members the voting members think that there's a way to a ways to go yet before they're done no clearly barkin also on the wire deceleration and inflation won't be immediate or predictable which i guess Long you can and understand but it lags in monetary policy as I was going to say, it feels a little stale, though, these comments on, that we're getting from them. Don't they see what's happening in the market? Yes, but their goal doesn't. It, their goal includes financial stability, but it doesn't include market performance. Their their goals are set in terms of economic performance. Yeah. And that's what they have to they have to focus on. But I'm trying to emphasize there was there certainly was a lot of surprise in the performance of inflation over the last year. And to yep. assume that we that we can be very confident that we understand where it's headed is uh, is a little presumptuous. But again, I want to focus on that even today, that uh, that the uh, bulk of the price increases have come in food, energy and uh, and motor vehicles. It's spreading out. It's spread out, and it means it's not going to be yep. easy to, to get out of the system. But it may not be quite as dire as uh, as a lot of the uh, uh, the more worried the more worried uh, warnings would have it have you believe. John Lipsky, thank you very much. It's always good to hear from you. Sarah, it's always a pleasure. Appreciate thank it. MBER chair. By the way, the two-year note yield at almost 4.2 percent higher again today. Ten-year yield almost at 3.8. Let's check in. The stock market, a little bit of improvement just in the last few moments or so. We're still looking at a broad sell-off, down eight-tenths of a percent on the S&P. But materials have now joined real estate in the green. Everybody else is down. Utilities and staples getting hit the hardest. The company formerly known as Facebook was also formerly a darling of Wall Street, but it has lost more than half of its value this year and facing some serious headwinds. We're going to debate whether it's a buying opportunity or whether there's more pain ahead for Meta. As we had to break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. Ten-year yield right on top. Selling bonds, yields higher. Meta, which is actually getting a boost today, but it's been on a downward slope. There's Apple down another 2%. Awful week for Apple. Nike down 12% off earnings. And S&P 500 down about eight-tenths of 1%. For the week as a whole, two and a quarter percent. We'll be right back. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages and underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available on all states. See policy for complete coverage details. What is Wall Street buzzing about this afternoon? Another twist in the Elon Musk versus Twitter saga, and it's sending shares higher this afternoon, up 3%. Our David Faber has the story. He's been reporting all afternoon and joins us on the news line. So what's happening here, David? Well, Sarah, as you point out, uh, Twitter shares have moved up uh, this afternoon on a story that hit a, a couple of hours ago that raised hopes amongst investors that perhaps uh, Mr. Musk and the Twitter board are engaged in serious settlement talks. Uh, those hopes may be misplaced at this moment. It is not to say that there will not be serious settlement talks between now and when the uh, trial in Delaware commences on October 17th, but it doesn't appear to be the case right now. Uh, the story that was reported by Bloomberg, fully accurate and interesting in and of itself, which is that Mr. Ari Emanuel, who's the CEO of Endeavor, of course, the super agent, 
who is also close friends with both Elon Musk and Egon Durbin. Egon Durbin is a board member of Twitter. He's also, of course, one of the founders of Silver Lake uh, and one of the major investors in Endeavor. Um, Mr. Emanuel, being close to both of them, tried to encourage them initially at his wedding uh, some months ago to, you know, come to some sort of a settlement, to talk, to avoid court, um, and try to figure out if there was a way uh, to avoid just endless litigation. Um, I am told as well that Mr. Emanuel followed up with Mr. Durbin, but still a number of months ago, perhaps, or a couple of months ago, saying you really should give this a shot. Uh, it doesn't appear that he was uh, pushed to do this by Mr. Musk, but was simply taking an opportunity he saw as a, a close friend of both men to, again, avoid protracted litigation, the inside of a courtroom, and what are always he, uh, perhaps the idea of unexpected outcomes. Um, that does not mean that there are serious settlement talks underway. In fact, uh, my sources close to the situation indicate that is not the case at this point. Again, it doesn't mean, Sarah, that there won't be at some point. Um, there seems to be an expectation in the market, given the strength of Twitter's case, at least at this point, based on what we've seen take place in court so far before Chancellor McCormick, that Mr. Musk might be motivated to try to offer a, a, a reduced price, but one that is uh, still amenable to Twitter's board. But at this point, best I can tell, those serious talks have not taken place. Mr. Durbin did bring um, news of his conversation or the outreach by Mr. Emanuel to Twitter's transaction committee of the board, uh, and that may be one reason why we have learned about it. But again, it, it appears that that took place some time ago. That is the initial outreach by Mr. Emanuel to Mr. Durbin. So what happens now? I, I assume you've been following the spectacle in the courtroom in Delaware, where I, I, I know I've read a lot of texts between Elon Musk. It's not your typical business case heads to court. What have you learned so far from the discovery proceedings that they've been going over? And, and what does it tell you about where it's headed? Yeah, well, the battles recently have been what is about what is privileged and what is not. You know, are the communications between Mr. Musk and his banker, for example, Morgan Stanley, privileged? Or should they be something that Twitter should be able to see uh, and use? Uh, and on the other side as well, Mr. Musk's attorneys making certain arguments about things that Twitter says are privileged. It doesn't believe it the case. We're going to hear from Chancellor McCormick soon uh, with an opinion on where those things stand. But overall, Sarah, again, and this is talking yeah. to people who follow it closely and know these kinds of uh, uh, trials well, or, or the pre-trial uh, motions uh, and the like, they believe, you know, Twitter has been doing a good job in court, uh, and that it's clear from Chancellor McCormick's comments uh, in open court that she's sometimes frustrated with Mr. Musk's, Musk's attorneys. That doesn't mean necessarily anything, but it's certainly, uh, again, perhaps being used as a sign by many who are following it closely that Twitter has a very strong case. And thus far, um, there have not been a lot of evidence introduced that would seem to indicate the ability of Mr. Musk to argue on the presence of bots on the platform being far above what right. they're supposed to be and therefore being fraud and a way to actually exercise a material adverse effect uh, in the merger. Up another 3%, kind of quietly climbing in the, in, back to 44, not 54.20, but, but off, the, off the bottoms we were seeing in the 30s originally. David, thank you. Thanks for phoning in with the latest. Our David okay. Faber. Meta, take a look, hovering around its lowest level in more than three years. Up next, we'll debate whether Meta, Meta is just getting too cheap to pass up right now. We'll be right back. 
at Meta. It's slightly outperforming today, but still closing out the week in the red. A slew of headlines hitting the company lately. There are reports of a hiring freeze there. It's trying to catch up to TikTok with Reels, losing momentum in online ads after Apple's iOS privacy changes. And top executive Sheryl Sandberg is officially leaving today. The stock has lost more than half of its value since the start of the year. Is now a good time to buy? Joining us is Rohi Kulkarni of MKM Partners, says yes. And Angela Zeno of CFRA says no. So, Rohi, why, why do you think it's a good time to buy? Um, as you said, the stock is cheap. The valuation is very compelling. It is almost modeling uh, that uh, this company is uh, Yahoo 2.0, which I believe it is not. Uh, the company has uh, a lot of uh, irons in the fire. Uh, they're going to be controlling costs here. Uh, there are a lot of new areas of growth that they could start to monetize next year. There's a leap, leap of faith, I believe, but given the valuation, given the track record of innovation, and given that they have a lever to probably cut back on metaverse spend while pull forward with the monetization, this company can do many things from a revenue standpoint while keeping costs under control. I think they have clearly got the message from the street that they need to show some discipline on metaverse. Uh, I believe they will do that. Uh, we'll hear from them from uh, on the Q3 call. And if that is the case, then this is as good a time to buy given where the valuation is. Angela, why, why is Rohit wrong? Although I am looking at your target and it looks like you took it down from 190 to 150, which is still above where we are now. Yeah, I mean, it is above where we are now, but, you know, I'd say kind of, you know, when we kind of think about names that you want to buy in a potential recovery, let's say in 2023, um, this is probably not the name we would be gravitating to in terms of large cap tech. Um, yes, it is the cheapest large cap tech name within our coverage universe, um, but we think, one, the consensus estimates just remain overly ambitious. You're looking at about low teens revenue growth in 2023, um, and there are just too many headwinds ahead. I mean, clearly the macro headwinds uh, out there at their top of mind. I mean, uh, depending on how far that you know this recession has to go, um, the easiest place to really cut costs right are on the ad side of things. And we do think there's more um, kind of cuts to come here in the coming uh, months and quarters. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, the competitive pressures, which we're all aware of, um, as well as kind of, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the bulls out there, if they're kind of hanging their head on anything, it's reels. Um, and you, the run rate there is still extremely low. We're talking about a $1 billion annual run rate right now. So I mean, it's cannibalizing kind of a longer term video um, offering there. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, it's really hard to yeah. kind of um, talk about um, large cap tech in any respect until kind of the dollar starts to stabilize, which is kind of growing, you know, increasing at a parabolic um, rate. And that's really going to intensify here um, in terms of the headwinds going into uh, Q4. No, the dollar continues to make new highs, new high earlier this week. So, Rohi, what is the deal with Reels? Is it a success or not? Because early it seemed like they, they were gaining a lot of traction in the competition against TikTok. But as Angelo said, it's still very small. And recent reports indicate it's lost some of the momentum. Um, it is still an experiment. I would say for a company that's $100 billion in revenue, a billion dollar run rate is not a needle moving in any shape or form. But uh, what they're doing is, from an engagement standpoint, that's where they're bringing back users in. They're bringing back people in, in spending more time on the main Facebook platform. And they're bringing back creators with 
uh, a way for them to stay on Facebook with the large uh, base of uh, users that they have. So once the flywheel on this small little molehill, which is Reels, uh, starts to play, I think that that balloons very quickly uh, into a needle-moving uh, revenue contributor for next year. Again, it's, it's still early days. I think uh, Facebook has dealt with uh, transitions in consumer behavior, dealt with transitions in advertising technology over the past four or five years. So part of uh, why we like Facebook here, apart from valuation, is in the belief that this company has gone through cycles, has gone through investment uh, focus areas uh, over and over again and re-innovated in a way that they can hold on to users, hold on to engagement, and rest will follow. We'll see evidence of that over the next six, nine months, and then the flywheel uh, kicks into itself, and, and that's where um, uh, upward revision estimates uh, will follow. So that's that's our basic Facebook uh, kind of a long thesis, and, yeah. and part of it is uh, how they have performed in the uh, prior to the memory that people have prior to July of last year. Uh, you got to go back what Facebook has done prior to July of last year. They increase their market share every year for six years in a row. Uh, believe that Google lost market share every year for six years in a row. Facebook will return to that uh, starting 23 June, I would say. Good debate, guys. Thank you both for joining me. Meta unchanged on the day. Rohit, Angelo, good to see you both. Take a look at where we stand right now in the markets. The Dow's down about 321. We're just off the lows here, but still couldn't hang on to the gains today. It got as high as 122 higher on the Dow and then gave it all back and then some. The S&P 500 tracking for another 1% decline almost here. Every sector is lower except for real estate at the moment. It's been a dismal third quarter for the market. But coming up, Wells Fargo's Scott Wren reveals his best investment idea for the fourth quarter. We'll be right back. Check out today's stealth mover, Rent-A-Center. Good read on the consumer here. Retailer allows people with little or no credit to rent to own everything from electronics to furniture. The company slashed its third quarter earnings forecast below Wall Street's estimates. The company says that economic conditions are hurting retail traffic and also hurting customer payment behavior. The news sending shares to the lowest level since April 2020. Remember, yesterday, a firm CEO, Max Lefton, told us that there were early signs of stress in the most vulnerable consumer demographics, the lower credit, lower income part of the portfolio. Continuing to see evidence of that today in Rent-A-Center. Take a look at Carnival shares also sinking to their lowest level since the pandemic on a much larger than expected quarterly loss and rising costs. Up next, we will discuss whether a potential rebound is on the horizon. The stock is down more than 22 percent. That story plus Micron rallies and the best investing idea for the fourth quarter when we take you inside the market zone next. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Laffler Tengler Investment CEO and CIO Nancy Tengler here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, we've got Jeffrey's David Katz on Carnival's big plunge and Wells Fargo Investment Institute Scott Wren on top ideas for the fourth quarter. We'll kick it off with the broader market, Nancy. Dow down 354, just another day where we could not hold on to a rally this morning, up 122 on the Dow, even in what many would call un- oversold conditions, very negative positioning and sentiment. What have you been doing this week? Well, <laughs> holding on. Um, <laughs> we, we've been moving our clients uh, for the last three months at, uh, into short, high-quality bond ladders, not at the expense of equities. We still have pretty significant exposure to 
dividend growers. I've been running dividend growing strategies since the mid-1980s, Sarah. And this is this is a time when they shine. Not only do they provide uh, some hedge in your income against inflation, but also protection in declining markets. And then around the edges, we've been adding to some of the higher quality growth names in our growth, our GARP strategy, because we think when you when you, when all the dust settles, you are going to want to own some of these companies that can deliver growth reliably, reliably, and their multiples have come down pretty dramatically. So we're finding some attractive names in that space. But it's you, you don't want to get too far in front of this. We we've raised a little bit of cash uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, we aren't fully invested. So we're not market timers with cash. We use our asset allocation to make you know those decisions. But uh, y- you know, when you have some gainers like a Palo Alto Networks, you kind of want to take some of that in an environment like this. That's it, Micron, because interestingly, it is in the green today and it's actually up 2% this week. The company beat estimates for earnings, missed on sales, issued weaker than expected guidance. But CEO Sanjay Marotra was upbeat that demand will improve soon when he came on for an interview on Squawk on the Street. Listen. In calendar year 22, uh, smartphone and PC demand has come down significantly versus the expectations in the earlier part of the year. We do project that in calendar year 23, you know, the smart China will open up, uh, you know, post-COVID, China economy should rebound. I mean, over the years you've seen, you can never write off China. As well, that will bring back some of the demand uh, trends on smartphone and PCs. Micron also cutting its capital expenditures. They're cutting utilization. Why is the stock up? Nancy, are you a buyer? Uh, no, we're not. Um, I, I, listen, I admire CEOs that get in front of the camera after a disappointing earnings call. But, um, you know, we, we've been paying attention to a lot of the CIO surveys that show that most CIOs, and to the tune of 86% in a recent survey, are increasing their software spend in enter- enterprise, uh, or enterprise CIOs are increasing their software spend, and 58% are decreasing their hardware spend. So while I think the consumer will return, uh, and that will help their, their handset and smartphone business, I, I don't think this is a place where you necessarily want to uh, jump in right now. Uh, we think a name, you know, one of the top spend names in that space uh, or in software uh, between now and 2025 is Microsoft. Uh, it, it garnered, according to the CIOs, 27% of spend. So I think you want to stay with the industry leaders uh, with a bias towards software and enterprise and then, of course, cyber. Yeah, some analysts pointing to just the glass half full view that Sanjay painted and the executives painted on the conference call. Look at Carnival, though. Shares are getting crushed today, losing nearly a fifth of their value. The company missing street estimates on revenue. It also said inflation and rising fuel costs are delaying a return to profitability. The stock hitting a 30-year low. The three major cruise operators are some of the worst performers right now in the S&P. Let's bring in Jeffrey's analyst, David Katz. He's on hold on Carnival. $12 price target. What? What happened here, David? This is supposed to be the big rebound. Uh, They did miss on revenue, as you pointed out, Sarah. Uh, They uh, came in uh, high on the cost side as well. But I think more importantly, uh, the street had been uh, taking the view that they could exceed 2019 EBITDA by 2023. And they walked that back on the call this morning. And I think that aspect of it is probably the biggest driver. What is the trajectory of this recovery going to look like? And the most important aspect of our thesis has been that Carnival and Cruise in general does not have the pricing power that we're seeing elsewhere in hospitality, right, where room rates are high, uh, the cost of things. They're just not able to embed that inflation 
the, the way others are because their patrons are a value-driven customer. And so they bundle and do other things, but, but they're just not getting it, Sarah. I was going to ask why. So the value-driven customer part of the reason, but because, you know, we've had, and I know Arnold's not there anymore, but we had him on so many times and he kept saying, you know, once these restrictions ease, once the CDC lifts its guidelines, and now they can, they can, you, you don't have to be vaccinated, right, to go on a cruise. The demand is there. The forward bookings are strong. Is that not the case? Uh, it, it is the case. I think part of what hit them today and what will hit them again in the fourth quarter is they had some carry forward credits uh, that worked into pricing and, and brought the ticket pricing way down below what we were expecting. Uh, and frankly, they've not been particularly good guiders, or particularly open guiders over the years. Uh, and, you know, I think that attribute, this is not the day to be like that. I think we need a little bit more information flow and just more comfort with where our numbers are. Uh, we're still working through our model today, uh, you know, post the filing uh, coming out. Uh, but, you know, we have some homework to do and try and figure out what 2023 is going to look like uh, and, you know, potentially what 2024 could look like uh, in this environment. So when when now do you expect profitability and how's the liquidity position uh, until then? Right. So we, we do expect that they will be in positive EBITDA territory in 2023 uh, and where that exactly lands, you know, is fine. They have ample liquidity for the moment, they did a billion dollar uh, equity offering back in July uh, at $9.95. So they have enough cash. Uh, you know, people have been asking, can they survive? And we believe that they can in some semblance of a normal 2023. Uh, you know, frankly, it's just not an easy stock to buy today uh, because you, you need to have a cohesive consensus. You need to have a sense of what 4Q is going to look like. And if they're not going to get to that 2019 benchmark by 2023, we need to know how far off they're going to be and what that trajectory really looks like. And until then, you know, establishing value is hard. It's a tricky one. Thank you, David. Appreciate the commentary. Yep. David Katz. Well, the market is finishing up an ugly quarter and an ugly September. The worst September for the Dow since 2002 and 2008 for the S&P and the Nasdaq. We remember what was happening then. Joining us now for some top ideas for the next quarter as well as Fargo Investment Institute, Scott Wren. And I'll just point out that we are now making session lows again. We've headed south and we're down more than 400 points, 438, falling fast here uh, on a Friday afternoon for the Dow. The S&P 500 is now down one and a quarter percent. Looks like it, it just took a spill here into the, into the closing bell, Scott, down 2.7 percent for the week. So what are you telling your clients to do? Well, Sarah, you know, what we've been trying to do really since early March and into April and, and into early May was get defensive. I mean, we're, we're in hunker down mode here, and I think we're about as de defensive as we want to get. I mean, we're sticking to uh, from a from a larger picker picture perspective. Uh, we like large caps. We do like some mid caps. Uh, we want to be in very short term uh, fixed income. You know, this is capital preservation mode, not capital appreciation mode. And so I think, you know, for the fourth quarter here. Um, you know, do we think the market's going to be a little bit higher than where it is right now? We've got a 3,900 year end target out there, so we do. Um, if that happens, we'll probably see things like uh, technology, healthcare, energy uh, help get us up there. Uh, but we're not expecting a whole lot in the fourth quarter. And I think into the early part of next year, you know, hunkering down, capital preservation, that's what people need to think about. Hopefully, uh, they're defensive by now. They've had plenty of time to do that. Now it's just riding through the volatility.
When I think of defensive, though, and this is a question for Nancy, too, who, who is recommending dividend growers, I, I think of the staples. But if you look at the 52-week low list today, Procter & Gamble, lows since March 2021. Mondelez is on there. McCormick, Colgate, Church & Dwight. These are supposed to be the safe places to go during recession, Scott. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's tricky, Sarah. There's there's a lot of, you know, within, let's say, staples, um, you know, there's a lot of different cost variability because of inputs and things like that. And so I, I think you have to be, you know, you have to be very choosy here. And, you know, whether it's technology or consumer staples, you know, you need to pick companies that have good cash flows, that own their niche, uh, that have good balance sheets, um, that have products that are selling and that they can supply and they aren't seeing their costs just absolutely soar. So, you know, you really have to like put what? paper right now. Well, I mean, you know, I, in, let's say in, t in technology, which has obviously been hammered here, um, you know, you need to look at technology companies that are focused on efficiency, automation, um, those types of things. And then other staples, you know, you have to pick and choose where, you know, you might have a staple that has really high food input prices. Well, you know, they're probably not faring all that well, where you have something with, with some slightly less sensitive or tight supply type of inputs, those are the ones you need to gravitate uh, toward. But, you know, the bottom line is um, you want something that's less sensitive to the economy isn't suffering from a bunch of input price pressures and, you know, can still deliver at least some semi-adequate or good right. earnings growth going ahead. Nancy, I'll, I'll put it to you because you like some of the high dividend payers. I, I think of AT&T and Verizon. Where are we on those dividend yields? Seven, six, seven percent. They get they get higher as the stock prices go lower. But they're they're now AT&T is trading at lows we haven't seen since April 2003. Verizon going back to 2015. We don't own either one, Sarah. We, we look at relative yields. So we're buying um, not the top quintile or decile of dividend payers. We're buying the ones that are actually, you know, more relative value and growing uh, their dividends fast. So, you know, Target is a name that you, you want to be stepping in here, 20% dividend growth. Um, public storage just pay, paid a special dividend of $13. Walmart, uh, those those Walmart is a staple that's actually held up pretty well in here. So we're and and in some of the names in technology. Uh, so we're looking at the the companies that are raising the dividend based on what they think long term sustainable earnings power is. And if you look at the market returns since March of '09, the the return on on the stock the price performance was 433 percent. When you add in dividends and the compounding, it was 600%. So dividends play an important role in total return. Major averages heading for their third straight quarterly loss. Scott Renn, Scott, thank you very much. We've got two minutes to go in the trading day, Nancy. So as I mentioned, worst September since 2008 for the S&P 500, worst month since March 2020. I mean, the, you, all the superlatives are there. It's, it's getting ugly. How much more pain do you think we are in for? What, what's going to be the key to, to stop the bleeding. Yeah, I, I, you know, it always feels awful like this. I've been through enough of these and I think never again. But, um, you know, I, I think we need to get a sense of, of where the Fed is going to stop. I know what they've told us, but remember a year ago, 
the dot plot showed uh, an increase. The median was an increase of 25 basis points for 2022, and we're at, and we're at 300 or 300 to 3.25. Uh, I, I think the tough talk has been, and we've heard it, and now we need to see if there's going to be any any uh, relief coming. Uh, earnings is something you've got to be focused on, uh, and, and we're going to get that soon enough. So I think that may give us some relief because I don't think earnings are going to be as bad as the market might be anticipating. Okay, well, that's something hopeful. We'll leave it on that note. Nancy Tingler, thank you very much. And I would just add to some of those 52-week lows that I mentioned in the Staples world, some of the technology stocks are in there as well. Alphabet now trading at the lowest level since February 21. Salesforce, lowest level since April 2020. Some of the banks are in there, like Citigroup, lowest level since November 2020. Take a look at the Dow as we head into the close. We are at the low point of the day, down 498 now, down 500 here on the Dow. The Dow is actually having its worst September since 2002. So that is even larger than the September 2008 when the financial crisis was in full swing. Uh, thank you very much for that. Peter Schaff now on the notes here internally. S&P 500 goes on with a loss of 1.5%, 1.5% also for the NASDAQ. Another week in the red, another month, and another quarter, the third straight in a row. Have a good weekend, everyone. That's it for me on Closing Bell. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages are underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details.